You are listening to Inside the Tunnel, a Virginia Tech sports podcast presented by VT Scoop on 247sports.com. All right, we are now on the line with Evan G. Watkins. He is a fellow writer for VT Scoop and the owner. Evan, we finally have a podcast. How are you feeling about it? Right, we're coming in right underneath the wire. Season kicks off in a few days, coming in right underneath the wire, underneath everybody's noses. Nobody's expecting it, so let's do this. Yeah, absolutely. I thought we were going to have this for like three months ago, but better late than never. Yeah, it was on your plate of things to do, so I don't know why I didn't get that. I don't know. I think it was both of our responsibilities, but regardless, we got it done. There's a lot of things to talk about. There's a lot of conversations that we've had offline, and I guess the point of this podcast is to kind of let the listeners listen in on what our typical phone conversations are like, what our text messages are like, because anytime something pops up, we're usually talking about it. We have a lot of opinions on it, differing opinions. So I think this podcast is a great opportunity to kind of share all those thoughts and and channel them in the right way. And I know there's nothing bigger than the Brock Hoffman case and, uh, you know, starting off on a somber note, but uh, I know that you've been covering him since high school. Uh, you've been following him through college. Uh, you were a pivotal uh, person in covering his recruitment to Virginia Tech as a graduate transfer from Coastal Carolina. His waiver was denied yesterday. What were your initial thoughts on that? I've been very vocal about this on every platform available. The NCAA is, is making a big uh, big. Uh, you know, they've screwed up a lot. They, they've shown that they just pick and choose. They showed that there's no, in, that there's no consistency. There's inconsistent as they come to string Brock Hoffman along like this with a legitimate reason for his transfer. You know, I've said, uh, I've said for a long time of two kids that I've covered two, uh, two kids are definitely should be eligible this year. Sean Savoy and Brock Hoffman, both of them transferred for the right reasons. Other kids, Maybe it was the right reasons for them. Maybe it's reasons that I don't know about. But there's a lot of people out there that transferred for these gray areas. Maybe they weren't starting. Maybe they thought that uh, that they would get a better opportunity to play elsewhere. But Brock Hoffman transferred for a legitimate reason. He had a, a sick mother. He wanted to get closer to her. And then for the NCAA to string his family along and then come out and say, well, why, if your mom's so sick, why didn't she retire? That's none of their business. That's a terrible line of questioning from the NCAA. That's a terrible line of thought from the NCAA. And I can guarantee you, just like Brock Hoffman's father said, no lawyers and no doctors were in that, that, that decision-making process. So it's not up to the NCAA to decide how sick she is. It's not up to the NCAA to decide if it's a, uh, a matter of life and death for her. It's up to the NCAA to decide if she is ill, which she is. The doctors have said that. And he's moving closer to home to be with her. Like Brock Hoffman has said, like his father has said, Justin Fuente and Virginia Tech, they're letting him go home every break. They let him go home every off day. This isn't a situation where he sits in his room and kind of just thinks about, oh, I hope my mom's okay today. He's actually going back to Statesville, North Carolina on basically a weekly basis to see her, to make sure everything's okay, to take care of her, take care of his family, and for the NCAA to basically laugh in the face of that while other kids are getting uh, their waivers guaranteed right away or granted right away is ridiculous. I know um, you know, Cameron Kelly was, 
was another one that I covered throughout all of high school. Cameron Kelly has a legitimate reason to transfer from Auburn back home. He has an illness in his family. Chapel Hill is over two hours from Chesapeake, and it's further than 100 miles. And he was granted immediate eligibility. And it just it doesn't make sense. It's very inconsistent. I think the NCAA has done a major injustice. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that they will change their ways a little bit. I, I'm kind of hoping that Brock is a catalyst right now for some change in the NCAA. They've been way too lenient on allowing anybody and everybody a chance to transfer. And, and it's just you're just opening up a can of worms that doesn't really need to be open. Had they said no to Justin Fields, had they said no to Tate Martell, this wouldn't have been going on. All of these waivers wouldn't be going on. All of these appeals wouldn't be going on. But what's happened is they said yes to those guys early. Everybody flooded to the transfer portal, transferred, and then put in waiver after waiver to become eligible. The NCAA can't handle the workload. The institutions are stuck waiting on rulings. The, the kids are left, you know, the, the student athletes that the NCAA is supposed to protect. They're sitting there wondering what, you know, what's next in their career. Uh, I think that the NCAA made it, got it wrong with Brock Hoffman. I think they did way more than they are supposed to do. And I think they went way outside of their bounds. Um, but that's the decision that they made. So I'll tell you, after covering Brock Hoffman throughout high school, covering his recruitment to Virginia Tech as a transfer, knowing him and knowing his family, I feel very sorry for who has to line up against him for a snap next year. Brock huh? Hoffman is going to go off. That kid's an animal. He's a bully. He would have been a heck of a player for Virginia Tech this year, but next year is going to be on a whole new level because they're going to unleash something in him, the NCAA is, that I don't think we've ever seen. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's a multi-year starter. Here's a guy that when I covered him in, in high school, he went one-on-one in, at a Virginia Tech camp, ripped the guy's earring out, threw it on the ground, and just like Stone Cold off Steve Austin stared down at him as he went back to, uh, to the reps. He's a guy that just, he has football on the mind. He's a bully. He's going to get in there. And I, 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 I feel terrible for whoever has to take that first snap next year. Even if it's a guy on Virginia Tech practice squad this year, somebody's going to get a, a, a beating out of, uh, out of him letting off some frustration. It's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Man, I wish I was at that camp when that happened. That would have been the highlight for sure. I think, uh, definitely the, the best camp experience I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, don't get too many of those anymore. But um, I guess my initial thoughts on this whole thing, about a week ago, we had a conversation and I know that news was expected last week around last Monday. And when we were preparing for the story, we were preparing for both outcomes. And I think, you know, obviously I chose to write the one of the denial first And I think that was one of the toughest articles to write. And part of our jobs is as much as we like to break the good news, that you have to handle the bad news as well. So when when I was writing that article, it was almost like my stomach dropped because I couldn't fathom a world where the NCAA would deny Brock of his right to play. And quite frankly, my mind started shifting and and thinking if that were me and I'm coming back to take care of my family member who you you don't know what's going on you're a young kid in college trying to sort through everything you know my thoughts were you know what if 
what if I'm denied and my family never gets to see me play again? And I think I got really emotional from that because you, you don't know what type of pride that he brings his family. If, if that's a way out for his family to forget about the mountain of debt that they're going through with all the medical bills, um, you know, a, a source of enjoyment that, that briefly takes them out of all the pain they must be going through. So I think this decision is far beyond football and that's what makes it so tough. And like you alluded to, I'm glad that that he can become a catalyst for this new process. Obviously, the transfer portal's new. It came out last year. I'm sure there's tons of waivers that have been denied, and rightfully so. But this one just seems so cut and dry that it was such a no-brainer to say yes to this kid. And, you know, I'm I'm personally very happy that a lot of national people at ESPN at other places are starting to cover this story, are starting to bring exposure to the NCAA because at the end of the day, it just appears that if you're a big-time transfer at a big-time position, you're just going to be approved because you're making the NCAA money. And, you know, th that's what was very hurtful about this one. So, Obviously, I got very emotional about it. It's not often that you see both of us on Twitter or on the message boards speaking out of that emotion. So this one was definitely tough. And, you know, like like you also alluded to, Cameron Kelly, a kid deserving of it. I saw a lot of people on Twitter today kind of bashing that decision, but they got that one absolutely right. I just wish it would be a consistent case for each one of these transfers. And And if you have a family condition, I mean – I feel like it, it, it should just be approved. Um, but that's just my thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that uh, when you when you look at the guys that are transferring for uh, family illnesses, I think that it should be – I do think there should be a limit on it, but I do also think, you know, it, it needs to be something that is more than just black and white. I think Luke Ford is another one that was denied immediate eligibility due to a sick family member. And – if you, if you look at it, you hate to be the one to think it, but I know everyone is. If Brock Hoffman had transferred to Alabama, are we having this conversation? If he had transferred to South Carolina, are we having this conversation? Even North Carolina, are we having this conversation? He, he chose to transfer to Virginia Tech, and it, it puts the, the appeal out there or, or the, the court of public opinion that the NCAA is angry with Virginia Tech or is angry about the way that they got the backlash of the initial denial. Um, I, I don't, I personally don't want to believe that that's right. I don't want to believe that the NCAA has a vendetta against any school, but it, it does make you wonder if, you know, if he's going to one of these quote unquote blue blood schools, uh, would we even be having this conversation or would he have just been approved? months ago and, and not had to uh to deal with any of that yeah and i also hate the 100 mile radius rule i know it makes sense you want to limit the amount of people that are are trying to transfer but at the same time you know how many places are within 100 miles of, of virginia tech i mean of all the kids coming to school there um virginia is such a spread out state that it's so tough to put a limit and you know, I feel like it should vary case by case. Maybe that's a minuscule thing, but 
Um, that's one thing that I thought about. The second thing I thought about, and maybe you have some insight on this, um, is I believe that Coastal Carolina went through a head coaching change. So would that not alone be a good basis for a waiver? You know, when we found out about his transfer, it was uh, coming out that he had checked three of the four or five boxes to get immediate eligibility, and a coaching change was one of them. Uh, I think that the process had already begun about his mom, and I think that speaks a little bit more to the validity of it when he could have easily gone another route, yet he went the route of, of his mother being sick and the real reason of why he was transferring uh, and it ended up coming back to kind of bite him a little bit. And, you know, I think it's interesting. Coastal Carolina stuck their neck up for him. They, they went out on the out on the limb a little bit, sent some letters to the NCAA petitioning for him to get immediate eligibility. And Virginia Tech did as well. But in this situation, there is no answer from the NCAA. I think that's what everybody's waiting for, including Virginia Tech, waiting for an answer of why they why they went this way. Why is his case different than other cases why you know why did he why does he have to sit when other guys like Cameron Kelly can play right away I think it's a legitimate question and I think the NCAA needs to answer it I think court of public opinion is definitely out uh, against the NCAA right now and the NCAA needs to find a way to put a message out there either to Virginia Tech or to the family or even out there to the public of exactly what went wrong here why why did they continue to ask different questions why did they continue to need different information and and, you know why does it come into play about you know why did why is your your mother still employed if she's this sick that's just lines of questioning that shouldn't be asked and are probably going to open them up to maybe some civil litigation i wouldn't be surprised if that comes out i believe that's what brock hoffman's father said on twitter today um that he was going to seek litigation against the NCAA for their decision. Um, you know, I don't want to go too much more on this topic because, you know, it is a pretty, it is a dark topic. It, it's one that's important to address and, um, you know, cover it from our point of views. Um, but I do want to shift attention towards the season and talk about our season predictions, which are on a brighter note. Yours in particular, you have the Hokies going nine and three next year after a six and seven season last year. You know, what was your reasoning behind picking a nine and three record? Just looking at the schedule, I think that Virginia Tech schedule is really advantageous for a bounce back year. I think it's one that, uh, you know, with two FCS programs on there, a couple of the out of conference games, I think it's a, a, a schedule that really sets up well for them. I think that the three biggest games, in my opinion, the ones that I have them penciled in to lose, are Miami, Notre Dame, and Pittsburgh. A lot of people might wonder about that Pittsburgh one, one, but history is showing Pittsburgh plays Virginia Tech really tough. It's always a close game, has been for the last few years. And, and the Hokies have just had a tough time with that physical run game that they always seem to have and those offensive linemen. So. You know, I think that that's a game a game later in the season that I think the Hokies could drop. Uh, you know, watching Miami the other night, I made my predictions before that. I, I'm, I'm not 100% sold on Miami. I think there was a lot of hype there. Not saying that the first game proves a lot, because we saw last year firsthand with Virginia Tech that the first game could be a fluke or it could be a, a situation where the other team's not as good as maybe you thought they were or they were built to be. 
Um, so I think Miami's a game that I think is going to be a little bit of a toss-up. But again, Miami has been playing Virginia Tech tough for a while. Uh, they, t- they tend to get the, the better of them recently. So I think that's one. And then Notre Dame, you never know what Notre Dame game you're gonna, team you're going to get. You don't know who's going to show up. But Notre Dame has, uh, has been a team fairly recently that's been on the rise. And I think that they, uh, I think that's going to be a tough test for the Hokies. Um, but nine and three, uh, you know, I think that that's definitely feasible. You just got to go in and take care of business this weekend in Boston College and kind of start things off right. But I think that the Hokies are uh, are trending up, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them have a pretty big bounce back here. Yeah, so I said eight and four. I agree with you about Notre Dame, Miami, and Pittsburgh. I also added Wake Forest into that. Um, you know, I'm not entirely sold on the defense yet, and I think, you know, it'll be, it'll be a test all year, but, um, going to your point about Pittsburgh and especially playing them later in the season when injuries take a toll, they're a super physical team. They like to, you know, just run the rock as much as they possibly can. I know they have a four star in there now. They did lose two guys, two thousand yard rushers. I think they combined for 20 plus touchdowns. So, you know, Pittsburgh lost a lot in the offseason, and I know a lot of people are kind of looking at those predictions, as well as a lot of the other guys that did the predictions with us. You know, the majority of people picked Pittsburgh to win that game, and like you alluded to, history kind of tells that it's going to be a close game no matter where the game is played. And, you know, remembering two years ago with the goal line stand and how good that Virginia Tech defense was, um, you know, it makes you think that no matter what next season is going to be a close game. I think with Miami, I don't draw too, I don't have too many takeaways from their week zero game. I think neither team was ready to play that game, to be quite honest. It looked very sloppy. It was a boring game for a reason. I think both teams needed one more week to prepare. And also at the same time, you know, Florida is ranked a a top 10 team. Are they that? I'm not certain. Again, it's week zero. But, you know, Miami against the rest of the Coastal, I think, is going to be a dangerous team. Just when you look at them on paper, and I know it's the case every year, and last year they had a down year as well, but they just have so much talent. And this year, especially at the skill positions, I think they're just so loaded. Their offensive line was abysmal. Um, but I don't know if they're going to go against SEC-type defensive lines every single week. And then at quarterback, you know, they he'll get better. Jaron Williams will get better over the course of a season. Um, he doesn't have to be a star for that team. And you saw kind of with Malik Rogier when they made the ACC championship game, you know, he wasn't a stud. He did enough. He made the, he made the chains move and, you know, he put up some points, but, you know, and then Miami's defense is a championship level defense. So, uh, you know, they're the team I look at right now. And I think that they kind of have the coastal on lock despite losing their week zero matchup. And then uh, Wake Forest to me, that game kind of – it seems like Virginia Tech never goes unscathed through the last part of the schedule, that there's always some hiccup there, whether it's fatigue, whether it's injuries. I just feel like they never quite win all the games that they're supposed to, especially later in the season. So, um, And also it comes after Notre Dame, so I think that 
maybe they could be overlooking Wake Forest. I think they're a sneaky team in the Atlantic division. Um, good quarterback play, tough competition there. Um, Cade Carney, really like him as a running back. I think their defense is underrated. Um, and I think they're a team that can sneak up on Virginia Tech. It'll, it'll be interesting because it's at Lane Stadium that, uh, you know, we'll see. But uh, other than that, you know, Notre Dame, I think, is is a team that's looking to go back to the college football playoffs. I think they're loaded everywhere. I mean, they've just been recruiting so well for so long. They're well coached. Uh, last season wasn't particularly close, and they returned most of those guys. So I think that's going to be a very tough game. But, you know, a couple of years ago, they won in South Bend. So uh, we'll see if Virginia Tech can can kind of, you know, steal the show once again. Uh, I know Georgia and Michigan are on the schedule for Notre Dame this year. So maybe Virginia Tech is overlooked in that regard. Um, so I am interested to see what type of Virginia Tech team shows up for that game. Um, but those are my four losses. I also debated... And I know a lot of people won't like to hear this, but I did debate the Commonwealth Cup game against Virginia. Um, I'm not entirely sold on Virginia. And I know, especially 24-7 sports has been talking a lot about how they could be the team to take the Coastal since every other team is going through turmoil or coaching changes. Um, So I can see why they picked Virginia, obviously Bryce Perkins should be a Heisman candidate. Um, He's a great dual threat quarterback and the defense is loaded. I mean, quite honestly, I know they lost a couple guys, Juwan Thornhill um, in their best overall defender last year. I know he's gone now, but I think they have a lot of pieces on the defensive side of the ball. And I think they have great depth there as well. So that's usually the formula for a championship team is a great quarterback and a very good defense. So I can understand it. It's just the question then becomes, does Virginia have enough talent on offensive line at wide receiver uh, at running back? Uh, They lost their, their top wide receiver and their top running back. So that's kind of where I lean towards Virginia tech. I just think they're more complete product on offense, even if you have Bryce Perkins versus Ryan Willis, I don't, I don't think that matters too much. Um, and then the defense, will it be good enough? You know, it's Bud Foster's last season. I kind of, I give the edge to, to Virginia, but I think Virginia Tech will will come up fired up. You know, that's his last Commonwealth Cup game, so we'll, we'll see what happens there. But what are your thoughts on the Cavaliers? You know, I think that they're a team that's definitely been improving, but. I think that last year, let's, I mean, let's just face the fact that UVA probably had one of their best teams in recent history and Virginia Tech had their worst and UVA didn't beat Virginia Tech. So I think that this is a streak that it will end one day. I don't know that it's coming up this year. I think Bryce Perkins is a good quarterback. I'm with you there. Uh, but when you have to rely on one player to carry your team for an entire season and the way he plays, the style of running he, he showcases when he takes off, He's a little bit reckless. He's a guy that he, he, he can be a home run hitter, but he can also get hurt really easily. I think that that's a, a situation that UVA needs to be very conscious of because if he goes down, all bets are off on them for the season. He is their guy on offense. I think that you hit it right on the head with, with Bud Foster's last game. 
I would be surprised if Virginia Tech came out flat in that game. I think that Virginia Tech's defense is going to come out on fire for Bud Foster's last game, last regular season game, send him out in a good way, last Commonwealth Cup. You know, I, I just I think that history shows, uh, you know, even as, as recent as last year, and when you add in the intangibles of Bud Foster's last game and the emotion, guys like Dax Hollyfield, even a guy like Brock Hoffman, he's not going. These guys are not going to let Virginia Tech lose to Virginia on their watch not under Bud Foster, and not under who the new defensive coordinator is either. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, I think that I have the Hokies in as a win there. I do think it'll be probably be closer than a lot of people anticipate. I think last year was a good uh, a good idea of just the type of team UVA is building. Uh, and Virginia Tech, should they, they probably should watch out a little bit. But, you know, I think the Hokies will win that game. Yes. Um, one more question I have for you is – I've been seeing a lot of talk, and especially on our message boards, about what defines a good season for Virginia Tech. And I've been seeing a lot of 10 and 2s from some people and and saying that 9 and 3 would be an average year, 8 and 4 is a bad year. I understand the out-of-conference schedule isn't that strong. Yes, you have Notre Dame, but but with Furman, with Rhode Island, with Old Dominion, you know, it's it's a cakewalk for those three games. Uh, no disrespect to those teams, and yes, I understand that Old Dominion pulled off the upset, but you know that seems like a, a once in a lifetime type game. Um, and certainly, after having it last year, uh, you can expect that Virginia Tech will not be underselling anyone next year. But I just want to hear your thoughts on what defines a good season for Virginia Tech. I think wins and losses definitely plays into it. I think nine and three is about the season. I'm expecting them to have anything above that would exceed my expectations. Um, So in my personal opinion, that would be a good season. But what I want to see is growth. I want to see growth from Ryan Willis throughout the season. I want to see an opportunity for the backup quarterbacks to get a chance to play. I want to see these offensive linemen who are young, but I want to see them grow. I think Christian Darisol did a great job last year. I think Silas Dandy is turned into a pretty good offensive lineman in the limited time we've seen him. Um, Luke Tenuta, I'm really fired up to see him get a shot to play. I just really want to see those guys take a step. And on defense, I want to see that defensive line play with passion. We haven't seen that in a while. You know, Trayvon Hill was a very passionate player, but we saw what, what, what happened with him last year after the Old Dominion game. I'd like to see that fire return to the defense. It's been a while since you could line up some guys on uh, – on Virginia Tech's defense and say to their dogs. And, and that just hasn't happened. I, I hope that it does happen this, this year because it's a lot more fun to watch. It's a lot more fun to cover when those guys are flying around and smacking some people. But, you know, I think that uh, that we're going to see a big uh, step forward from a guy like Caleb Farley. I think that a lot of fans are quick to uh, to write him off. I think he's going to take the similar trajectory as a Greg Stroman, but will probably end up forecasting a few years down the road end up as a higher NFL prospect simply because of his size. Uh, I think that, uh, that he's got that definitely over Greg Strom and they're both fast. I think they both have, uh, had the same potential and the same, you know, type of career. You know, Caleb Farley was, was very hot and cold last year, started off hot, cooled off for a while, seemed to pick some things back up as the season went along, but that was his first year ever playing defense. So I'm expecting a big step up from him. Uh, Jermaine Waller, I've heard nothing but great things out of his camp. I think that he's a guy that uh, that shows a lot of promise early. And I'm really intrigued at how Virginia Tech and how Bud Foster are going to rotate these linebackers. I think that the starting two with Dax Hollifield and, and Rayshard Ashby are, 
a very good combo in the ACC. I think behind behind Miami, they might be the best two linebackers uh, I could look at right now. I know Clemson's got some good linebackers as well, but you know I think that those two guys kind of stack up really really well in the ACC. But I want to see uh, Alan Tisdale and Amari Barno. I want to see how they're used. I think Barno could be a guy that could really bring a lot to the defense. Um, but you know, I want to see some some bigger margins of victory. I think Virginia Tech's offense is ready to break out. I think that the uh, you know the running back uh, group with Deshaun McLeese, Jalen Holson, and Keyshawn King. I think those three guys can be really dynamic. You know, I love Virginia Tech's wide receiver core. Their tight end uh, room might be might be the best in the ACC. They have some legitimate tight ends in there. So, you know, I'm I'm interested to see them take that next step on offense. Maybe maybe push the the ranks a little bit higher. How they stack up nationally at offense, and you know, Ryan Willis has a chance to go out and break some records in his last year of college football and really put a showcase on for for the NFL. So. I'm expecting some big things. I think the Hokies are uh, are primed for a big bounce back year this year, and we don't have to wait much longer to see. I think when you look at next year, and even though I picked Virginia Tech to finish eight and four, I think there's a very fine margin between eight and four and nine and three. And quite frankly, I think both seasons would be a good season in Blacksburg, Virginia. But when you look at the offense as a whole, and you're bringing back Ryan Willis. As a returning starter, and I know Josh Jackson had that opportunity last year, um, but he didn't look particularly strong up until his injury against Old Dominion. Ryan Willis was a guy that was on the verge of breaking records in only 10 games, and now he pretty much has his entire support cast around him. Eric Kuma departs, but Trey Turner really turned it on in five games started last year and looked like a freshman phenom. He was able to block a punt. He scored a rushing touchdown and had four receiving touchdowns. He's a guy that I think can be on a breakout watch for all ACC honors next year. Then you look at Damon Hazleton, the Ball State transfer. Last year was his first full year, and he had touchdowns in eight of nine games um, before he didn't really play in two games and then came back for the bowl game. So when you look at those three in particular, it's already a strong offense. Then you look at the offensive line. Vance Vice has his guys. He has his lineup. It looks like there's a lot of youth in there, but there's also a lot of size and athleticism, and I think that's especially important for next season that because you have a lot of depth at those positions along the the front lines of the offense, that injuries won't take a toll with rotations and different formations and guys that are better at other things than other offensive linemen so you have a lot of talent in that room that could create matchup nightmares for opposing teams then you look at the tight end room and you're bringing along James Mitchell last year he played all season long but primarily on special teams but then you have Dalton Keene who might be the best blocking tight end in the entire ACC James Mitchell more of a wide receiver Nick Gallo a guy that can steal some red zone snaps, kind of a blocking and receiving threat. Um, you look at the running backs, you bring back Deshaun McLeese and Jalen Holston, guys that have shown they have the potential to be contributors, but maybe haven't done so as consistently. And now they're being pushed by an incoming four-star prospect in Keyshawn King, a guy that's already listed as the third string and has been hyped about by the coaching staff. So he's a guy that can come in and who knows, maybe even seize the top spot. 
when I look at Virginia Tech defensively, I see a lot of the same. It's a lot of youth. It's a lot of athleticism, uh, particularly at the whip position is what piqued my interest when the depth chart was released this week is that Chamari Connor is starting over Khalil Ladler. He's a guy that is more physically imposing, six feet, uh, 211 pounds. He's a guy that is a big hitter. We saw that in the spring game. He's a guy that can really make an impact on the line of scrimmage, and I think he might hold up better against the 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 schedule, especially the ACC schedule, where you saw Khalil Adler got hurt later in the year um, because of his smaller frame. He was brought in as a cornerback. Um, so he's a guy that I think will make a huge impact on the defense. You bring back your linebacking core and you add reinforcements. So Alan Tisdale comes back. Like you mentioned, he's a guy that's very exciting, uh, a very athletic backer, a guy that maybe can be put in situationally. Amari Barno is another guy that kind of fits that mold. Maybe he can play at defensive end in certain packages He's a guy that you can kind of move all over the defense, and he's a very intriguing prospect because he got to campus late. Maybe that explains why he's further down the depth chart. Defensive line, I think, will be the major question mark of the season. Uh, yes, you bring back Gerard Hewitt. He's going to be senior. Uh, Deshaun Crawford, I'm very intrigued by. Juco guy, kind of molded to be a physical guy in the trenches. Uh, Taiwan Garbutt and Emmanuel Belmar flanking them. They can be consistent is probably what fans should hope for with those two. There hasn't been a ton of quarterback pressures uh, since Trayvon Hill or who Sean Gaines and both of them are gone. So there's going to need to be pressure on that defensive line. When you look at this linebacking core, I think, Rayshard Ashby was one of the bright spots, and he's another guy that I think can contend for all ACC honors along with his partner, Dax Hollyfield, the guy that brings that energy, brings that swagger to the defense, something that's desperately needed in Blacksburg, as you noted. The secondary, I think, highlighted by Reggie Floyd, Divine Diablo, and Caleb Farley. I think Jermaine Waller might get into that conversation. I think you know, not too many people are talking about him and, you know, why would they, he's only played half a season. Um, but he's a guy that maybe can bring stability after Bryce Watts left for North Carolina. I think the secondary will be vastly improved. I think with another year under all their belts, that experience factor, learning techniques, spending another off season, and especially going against the wide receivers and tight ends that they have on offense, you can only hope that they would get better. So I think there's a lot of promise on both sides of the football. Didn't even mention Oscar Bradburn, potentially the MVP of the team. All jokes aside, very consistent punter. Um, the kicking game, we'll see. But, you know, there's a lot of things to like about this team. And I think if all cylinders are clicking, there's no reason this team shouldn't be 9-3. and three. But the 8-4 and four prediction on my end is kind of a prove-me-wrong that – after last year, we saw so many glaring holes. Are they all going to be filled by the start of the season on Saturday? We'll find out. But now I want to kind of switch things up. Let's let's bring in Brian Doan of 24-7 Sports, a national guy that can talk to us about recruiting. 
and also preview the Boston College game. We're now joined by Brian Doan, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Analyst. Brian, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm living the dream like we all are. Absolutely. So I kind of want to get your perspective on both Virginia Tech recruiting and also the Boston College game, because I understand you're a Northeast guy. You're a guy that kind of covers the entire region in terms of recruiting and also for the regular football season. So I guess my first question to you is, with the opening matchup between Virginia Tech and Boston College, what are your initial thoughts on that game? Yeah, I mean, initially, I I dislike it tremendously because it's an important game to both schools and you're starting off with a conference game like that. Um, It it really is not the way you want to go into a Power 5 season. I get that it happens. You know, you watch Florida-Miami. I get it. I get it. But I'd rather this game be later on after you get things ironed out. I think the big thing for Boston College is, you know, what's going to happen with their offensive line? Is it good enough? We know A.J. Dillon's a good running back. Anthony Brown's a good quarterback. But are the holes going to be there? Is the protection going to be there? Um, you know, what will Bud Foster have the Hokies defense doing, knowing this is his last go-round with them? What kind of motivation is that? What kind of motivation is, you know, when they played last year and what happened um, in that game? There's a lot of things that I'm wondering about, and for me, it all starts on Boston College's offensive line. Can they be physical? Can they run the ball between the tackles? And will that set up to play action with Anthony Brown throwing the ball? And what would you say your prediction for how things will turn, in terms of final score, uh, which team do you think will come out on top? Yeah, I, I think it's a tough one for Virginia Tech to open with. Um, you know, breaking in a new quarterback, you're on the road. Um, I get all that stuff, but I, I just think that Boston College is a physical team. They're geared for this game. It's a home game for them. I think Boston College will wind up winning it by, you know, three, five points, somewhere around there. Yeah, it is interesting because when you're talking to a lot of Virginia Tech fans and a lot of guys that cover the season, um, including Evan and I, we both predicted Virginia Tech to win. I personally think it's going to be a close game. Evan, I don't know what your thoughts are. We'll get them in a second. Um, but it is interesting that so many people uh, think that it's you know a Virginia Tech win when you're talking about a, a Heisman contender at running back for Boston College, and they always have a physical offensive line like you alluded to. So we'll see how this one shakes out. Evan, what are your thoughts on it? You know, I think I've covered Virginia Tech long enough to know never to discount Bud Foster in the opening game. I think that he's going to have uh, have kind of a similar um, scheme to what he ran last year against Florida State to shut down Cam Akers. I think that uh, Dylan is one of the top running backs in the country. I don't want to take anything away from him, but I think Virginia Tech's going to sell out and try to limit him and limit his uh, his uh, explosive plays. So. You know, I think really what it comes down to Virginia Tech will be not just limiting him, but how do you keep Anthony Brown in the pocket? I think if Anthony Brown can start to show his legs a little bit, Virginia Tech will have some trouble. But if they can find a way to shut down or limit uh, A.J. Dillon and keep Anthony Brown in the pocket, I think their defense can do enough to keep them in the game. And I think Virginia Tech's offense is just better than, than Boston College's defense right now. I think that Ryan Willis showed last year he has the ability to air it out I think that Boston College will key in on Damon Hazelton, but 
Trey Turner is probably the most explosive player at Virginia Tech right now. I think he's got a good shot there. And I think that we might see a little welcome uh, welcome out party for uh, our breaking out party for Keyshawn King. I think the, the hype has been real throughout fall camp. The talk's been really, really high about him. And, and Justin Fuente doesn't praise a lot of freshmen. So I think he's going to come out and, and this could be his uh, – his welcoming party, first big game on the road, ACC contest, and he's a guy that I think can be explosive. So, you know, when it comes down to it, I think the Hokies will pull away. I, I, I kind of agree it's going to be a closer game. I don't see it going over seven points, but I think the Hokies will, will sneak out of Boston College 1-0. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, that's a good point about Keyshawn King. I know the other day in, in the press conference, Justin Fuente said that, you know, it, it's his dream to have a guy that can carry it 35 times and maybe it means nothing, but I just thought it was, it was funny that it's the Jersey number of Keyshawn King. So we'll see if it's his big debut. Um, if he bursts onto the scene and, and is the savior of the Virginia tech running back room, but I do want to switch the focus to recruiting and you guys both talked about it. It's Bud Foster's last season. Quite frankly, it's going to be the storyline all season long. But, Brian, I want to hear your thoughts um, specifically about recruiting. How do you think that Bud Foster's impending retirement affects the Hokies' class this cycle? Yeah, um, it'll come down to, you know, what starts getting out about who's going to be the new defensive coordinator, how much of the staff will change, you know, on the defensive side in addition to Bud Foster. You know, right now they're saying, hey, Bud's going to be around. Kids will still have access to him and all that other stuff. I mean, but man, let's be honest, Bud Foster's not retiring so he can hang around and still recruit 17-year-old kids to come to a program he's not coaching at. Um, to me, it remains to be seen just as what style they're going to play, how long it takes before they hire somebody, what kind of relationship does Justin Point they have with the defensive recruits to say, okay, here's what I'm thinking. This is the style we want to play. This is who we want to bring in, who we're looking at. Um, and the trust factor there, and, and that will determine it. And look, the better the season Virginia Tech has, the easier it is to hang on to these kids. But as the season starts moving forward, I think you'll see some schools make moves on some of the kids. And then it's just up to Virginia Tech to be able to hold on to them. And, and I think they'll be able to hold on to them. But the uncertainty of it is always a big thing. And now the class hasn't started off anything like any fan would imagine. Uh, currently, they're number 76 nationally and last place 14th overall in the ACC. Do you attribute a lot of the recruiting inefficiencies to Bud Foster? Or do you think maybe there's an underlying issue with the class in general? Yeah, I, I think it would be unfair to put it all on Bud Foster, especially when you're looking at some of the things on the offensive side where maybe they're not getting some players where they wanted um, also on that side. Um, I, I just think, you know, first of all, the ranking, and I know I, I wrote this, I think it was last week, part of the problem with the low ranking is when you're going to have low numbers, you're, you're not going to be ranked high. Um, it's just the way it is, the way the points work out and the way a class flushes out. If you're Virginia Tech, you're going to be on. You could have a really good class, and you're probably still a really good class. Maybe would finish in the you know the seven eight range of the ACC. So um, you know, so, so from the point with with what they're looking at with Bud Foster and how it relates to the whole class, I, I don't think that's fair. 
I don't think, you know, you, you don't sit there and you say, well, boy, this class is great at this school because of this one coach. Places have their really good recruiters, but it's more of a collective thing. And I know it was a big thing on on your board with, with VT Scoop about just when I spoke with Tyreen Powell earlier this month and he said after you know, the commit out of South Jersey and he said he still hadn't heard from Justin Point that he, he had talked to Bud Foster, but, but that was pretty much it from the staff. I mean, that's the stuff that you get a little bit concerned about, to be honest, when you're covering recruiting like I am, because you just want to have all, all the things tied up, all the, you know, coaches making sure that things are on point when such a move happens. And I think that's one of the things you see. And, and I also think that um, Virginia Tech did a lot of soul searching in the spring and looking inside on, on what they are and how they're going to go about things. And that may have taken away a little bit of the recruiting time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do want to get both of your perspectives, maybe in the long run. Uh, obviously, the class not stacking up too well right now. You talked about it, you know, low, low class size kind of impacts that ranking. Um, but Brian, we'll start with you. Where do you think the potential of this class is? I mean, where, where could this class possibly end up in your opinion? Jeez, if you're, I mean, top 50, if you're, you know, you want to be around 50, I think is where you look at, because again, if you're, you know, Evan and I had spoken about this on, on numerous phone conversations, but, you know, if you're going to bring in 15 kids, it's really hard to match up with other classes who are going to be compared with 23, 24 kids. I mean, that, that, that's, that really makes it tough when it comes to a ranking standpoint. So I just look at the fact of what, what do they still need? What positions do they still need to recruit? And... To me, you, know, you, you talked about the need for a playmaker in the offense, and Virginia Tech has one, and can you get more? I mean, can they get Keandre Lambert out of Norfolk? You know, he's a receiver that can do a lot of things. I saw him a few times in the spring, and he's outstanding every time. And he's a guy with huge growth potential because he's a long, wiry kid who still needs to fill out and get stronger. Great route runner, great hands tracks the ball well. He does so many things well. And for me, you know, I'm based in New Jersey. This is where I grew up. Virginia Tech built itself on the 757. And I was down in the 757 in end of April, early May. And, it, you know, they're still talking about Virginia Tech, but it wasn't with that same passion that I had heard maybe five years ago. And there's a lot of really good players there. And Virginia Tech has to get back to really doing a great job. And I don't want to say dominating, but getting a really, um, really high caliber kids out of that area. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. And I think also, like you said way earlier, that the results on the field will also make a big impact in that regard and bringing back the 757 into the fold. Um, but Evan, same question to you. What would constitute success for the Hokies recruiting class? I think if they can crack into the top half of the ACC in the, by the time the, the final tallies are in, uh, in February, I think that uh, Virginia Tech has 
they, they've done a, an interesting technique with taking only 12 to 15. They're looking at basically everyone as growth potential guys, not necessarily guys that can play right away, but guys who, uh, who could fill out and play in the future. I don't think one season is make or break for any program out there. And I mean, when you, when you face the facts, like, uh, like Brian said, they're not Clemson. They're not going to be a top school with 12, with 12 picks or with 12, uh, scholarships. They're not going to be a, a team that breaks into the top 25 with that. Try to break into the top 50, be in the top half of the ACC. The big thing that I, I want to see Virginia Tech do is I'd like to see them uh, land Keandre Lambert. I think he's a guy that not only uh, brings a lot of power in state, I think that he's a guy that Virginia Tech has put a lot of time and resources in, especially because he's related to Cam Chancellor. That's not a recruitment you want to lose. And when you look at his uh, his kind of his top three right now, Penn State, North Carolina, Virginia Tech. Hokies get the last crack at him here in a few weeks. He uh, he's a guy that wants the ball. He wants to air it out. I think Virginia Tech offers that. I think North Carolina might also offer that. Penn State's going to run the ball. That's who they are. That's their identity. Uh, and, and when it comes down to it, can Virginia Tech? You know, can they out recruit UNC and Penn State? They've done it a couple times before. They've lost those battles before. It's not a it's not a slam dunk for them. Not even a layup. This is a, this is one that they're going to have to battle to win, you know. And and, and there's there's some other kids that I think that the Hokies are definitely uh, in play for down the road. You know, I think that flipping Antoine Powell from Florida, I think that's not out of the cards. I think he's a guy that got caught up on some emotion, went down there on one visit, got a little bit of uh, information from some family members and friends of family, and committed to to the Gators, but. You know, they've had a lot of issues down in Florida. He has taken notice. His family's taken notice. I could see him being a guy that flips to the Hokies. That would be two four-stars if you can name those two. And Lambert. I'm with I'm with Brian 100% on getting back to the 757. And I think what will change some of that perspective is Virginia Tech needs a playmaker from there. I think they got him last year. I think Tavion Robinson's that guy. I think he's a guy that I wouldn't be surprised if he starts on Saturday. Four-year player for the Hokies. Uh, potential to be the starting punt returner and starting slot receiver. The Hokies need a big guy out of the 757 that they can point to. They thought it was Devin Hunter. He's taken longer to develop than, uh, than a lot of people thought he would. So, you know, the Hokies need a guy that they can point to on and off the field. I think Tavian Robinson might be that guy. Uh, and we'll see, you know, if the Hokies come out, win a few games, if other schools start to struggle, I know a lot of uh, mutual recruits between Virginia Tech and North Carolina. If North Carolina struggles, and Virginia Tech is winning. I could see a lot of doors opening, but the Hokies are going to continue to be selective. 12 spot, most of them are already taken right now. That number might might stretch to 15, but you got to imagine that the Hokies will save one or two spots a year for the for the transfer portal anyway. So, I don't see this class getting much bigger. We'll see uh, we'll see what happens down the stretch. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. Really appreciate the insight, and I'm sure we'll talk to both of you soon. I mean, have a great night. You're having me on.